Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. We're in a series in the book of Revelation, and there's going to be a couple of pictures on the screen that I simply want you to kind of get a sense of what happens inside of you when you first see them. Uh, The first several are puzzles. There's a crossword puzzle. Uh, Next is a kind of a maze. There's a little ladybug there at the bottom. There's one at the top, a lot of turns and confusion in between. And then the last one is a word search. When you see a picture of a puzzle, your your mind probably goes into a mindset of scrutinizing, analyzing, evaluating, figuring out, resolving, putting pieces in place, all of that kind of thing. When you see a, a picture of something else, the next three pictures just kind of Pay attention to what happens in your mind, in your spirit, in your being, and your response to seeing the visuals of these pictures. You see a beautiful church with fall leaves. And by the way, this was taken by one of our photographers right like just down the road. And you can almost like feel the air temperature. You know the time of season. Next one's coming up. There's a picture of a sunrise. Kind of just imagine being out there as a day becomes brighter. The next one, you can feel the coldness of the environment. Right away, you place yourself in the position of maybe the month of the year. You can feel the cold of the air. But when you look at a picture like this, you don't scrutinize, analyze, or evaluate. You actually imagine, you envision, you perceive, you picture, you respond. Now, the reason that has relevance to Revelation is, again, we're trying to read Revelation through how it's itself is instructing us to read. And so in Revelation 1.1, we read these words, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And so Revelation is less like a puzzle book and more like a picture book. It's less something that you analyze, scrutinize, take apart. And it's more something like you get the impact. You see the the focus. Your perception, your imagination is overwhelmed. It's more like a picture book than a puzzle book. That doesn't mean we won't dive into some details. We're trying to do that. But even if we can't dive into all the details, John himself says, this is something I'm going to show you. The impact is going to be a little different than trying to solve all of the riddles and put all the pieces together. That also relates to something else that John says in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it. And take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. He says, the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. 
When we hear prophecy, often what happens in our minds is a little bit different than what the Bible actually intends to communicate. We think of prophecy as primarily prediction. We think of prophecy primarily as foretelling in advance something that is going to happen. Prophecy in Scripture is not so much prediction or foretelling. Instead, it's proclamation and forthtelling. It's not just prediction. It's also proclamation. It's not just foretelling. It's also forthtelling. It's not just prediction about the future, it's proclamation of the truth of who God is. It doesn't mean we won't have prediction in Revelation, we absolutely do, but we're going to miss a lot of the story if we don't see the significance of proclamation. One thing that fascinates me is this, Scripture itself tells us who the greatest prophet is in all of Scripture. You know who it is? It's Moses. Now, how much predicting did Moses do? Well, Probably not a whole lot. When you think of prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and many others in the Old Testament, yes, there was an element of prediction, but mostly as prophets, what their job and their task was, was to proclaim God's word to his people, was to call his people to obedience. That was their job. That's prophecy. And so when John talks about the words of this prophecy, He's saying the words of this proclamation of God's truth, not simply words of prediction. Maybe one last thing that connects all these things to to sort of the pictures that we looked at earlier. We said pretty much every week that when you come to Revelation, what you have in Revelation is this dramatic story and this dramatic account of the high stakes of the rescue operation that we are involved in. I hear people say all of the time, and you probably do too, there's no way I can believe in God because of all of the evil that I see in this world. I get that. And here's why I get that. Because evil is deeply entwined and entrenched in our world. And just follow me on this. For that evil to be untwined, if that's a word, or no longer entrenched, it's going to take some sort of cataclysmic things to happen because I can tell you the level to which evil is integrated, synchronized into this world, the the level to which evil has its tentacles wrapped around the systems and structures in even our lives, the way that evil is integrated into our world, it's going to take a massive amount of sorting out for that evil to become finally disconnected from our world. I love these verses in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Here's what they say. God made you alive with Christ. Number one, for somebody to be dead and then made alive is a pretty big deal. It's not sort of like, oh, yeah, he's alive now. He used to be dead. Like That in itself is a pretty big deal. He forgave us all our sins. That's a pretty big deal. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us, and condemned us, it's a pretty big deal to move from condemnation to a declaration of righteousness and justice. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Like, those aren't tame words. Nailing it to the cross. You nail something down, there's something going on there. Then listen to these words. Use your imagination. 
and having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made, listen to this, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let me tell you something. Satan has devoted his whole existence to the destruction of humanity and the destruction of God's creation. He's devoted the focus of his entire existence to that. He's led other demonic forces to join him in that. When Jesus died on the cross, Satan thought, I won. When Jesus rose from the dead, Satan was defeated. That defeat is still being worked out. But here's what I want you to understand. Satan doesn't take that defeat lightly. There's going to be a viciousness of response to the exact words of Colossians where it says Jesus triumphed over them by the cross. He made a public spectacle of the forces of evil and darkness. And listen, listen to me. Satan is not going to be take is not going to take lightly being made a public spectacle that he was defeated. There's going to be some major things that are going to happen if evil is going to be disentangled from our world. And so Revelation uses cataclysmic language, crazy images, because a picture is worth a thousand words. And so John wants his readers to not just know data, but to get the visual impact of this cataclysmic event of evil being disentangled from our world. Satan is losing his grip. Satan is thrashing about. The forces of darkness will not go easily. Satan has already been made a public spectacle of, and he's not taking that well. And Revelation is the unfolding of that account. And so it's going to be crazy. And it should be, because it's a big deal. This morning, we're going to look at the church of Pergamum. I'm going to ask Moses to come up, and he's going to read, read Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And as we've done in most weeks, why don't we stand again uh, for the reading of God's word as Moses reads this uh, to the church in Pergamum, Revelation 2, chapter 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who was the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Malach to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Thank you, Moses. You can be seated. 
So we're going to work through our way through here. Uh, Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. So that every introduction to the church, a letter to the church that Jesus is addressing, borrows from some point of John's vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Remember in Smyrna that we looked at last week, it said, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. And we say that Smyrna itself was destroyed in the 6th century BC and then rebuilt in 280 BC. And so for the church of Smyrna, the part that John pulls from the vision of his vision of Jesus in John chapter 1 is the one who died and came to life again because Smyrna itself as a city died, was destroyed for several hundred years, and then came to life again. And so he connects part of his vision of Jesus in John 1 to a relevant part of the church that he's addressing. This one says, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. Remember, that was part of John's vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus comes, and he has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And Jesus has some fairly harsh words to say to the group at Pergamum. Now, here's what fascinates me right out of the shoot is this. When I see the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword, my natural inclination is to think, yes, finally, God is wielding the sharpness of his sword to destroy evil and wickedness in our world. But notice... These words are directed to the church. They're not directed to the outside world. They're actually directed to the church. I wouldn't automatically quickly pick that up. Because often when we think of God's truth, when we think of God's holiness, when we think of violating his holiness, we often think, ah, like those are words that we address to the outside world who is far from God and walks in wickedness and unrighteousness. But these words are actually addressed to the church. And friends, sometimes I kind of think we're in a season where we probably need to be more adept at addressing Jesus' words to to ourselves as his church, as his followers, and maybe not necessarily be so quick to wield that sword to the outside world. Yes, we need to speak words of truth to the outside world. But Jesus also needs to speak cutting words to us. Often when we think about the work of God's Holy Spirit, remember we talked about the sevenfold spirit of God. And so the fullness of God's Holy Spirit is connected to each of the seven churches. Often when we think of the work of God's Holy Spirit, we think of, of being inspired. We think of being empowered. We think of sort of the goodness of God that being applied to our lives. That is absolutely all true. But another part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to actually apply the truth of Jesus' righteousness to our own lives. It's not just to affirm us. It's not just to help us know more deeply God's compassion and his mercy and his goodness. The work of the Holy Spirit is also intended to help us become more in touch and more understanding of our own sin. Of the own, our, our ongoing ways that we fall short of following after Christ and full devotion to him. The Holy Spirit's work is not just about empowerment and inspiration and all the positive stuff. 
It's also about letting God's truth cut deeply into our own lives so that we see our sin, so that our souls are opened up and see the ways that we ourselves fall short of following after Christ. That doesn't mean that we endure eternal punishment. No, we are made right with God, not through our righteousness, but through the righteousness of Christ. But at the same time, as followers of Jesus, we are called to live in righteousness and devotion and holiness as we follow after Jesus. Grace is not opposed to obedience. Grace is not opposed to holiness. Grace is not opposed to devotion. In fact, the more that we walk more deeply in grace, the more obedient we become. When we say around Southridge that we want people to experience belonging, embrace God's grace, and extend God's love, what we don't mean by embrace God's grace is simply saying the words, dear Jesus, please be my Savior. What we mean by embracing God's grace is that we walk in tune with the Holy Spirit as he convicts us of our own sin, as he sharpens us to follow after him, as he highlights to us other ways that we're not following him as he calls us to. Reminds me of the words in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Remember we said, like, Revelation uses all of Scripture. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Listen, friends, we are declared righteous through Christ. We are in him. That's what makes us right. But there's also a very clear way that we're accountable to God in how we live our lives. We're accountable to him for how we follow after him in obedience. And scripture says one of the primary functions of the Holy Spirit is to use God's word, not just to bless us and comfort us, but also to convict us, to shine the light of God's truth deeply into our hearts and souls. And you know what? Sometimes it does feel like cutting. Sometimes God's truth needs to dissect us. Sometimes God's truth needs to pierce deeply into our hearts and souls. And that's the work of God's Holy Spirit just as much as affirmation and empowerment. Listen, the Holy Spirit does not apply God's unconditional affirmation to our lives. The Holy Spirit applies God's unconditional love to our lives. And it's precisely because God loves us that he wants to sharpen us in following after Jesus. The conviction of God's Holy Spirit is not opposed to God's love. It's an expression of God's love. And so the way that, one of the ways that God loves us is that he uses his Holy Spirit to dive deeply into the secret places of our lives to show us where we need to repent of our sin, our unrighteousness, our failures to follow after Jesus so that we can change our ways and follow after him. He says, 
Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Once again, just real quick. He says, I know where you live. We talked about the fact that in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is walking among the seven lampstands. And in one sense, yes, that's comforting. And and in many ways, that's a blessing to us. But Jesus walking among the lampstands is not just a blessing. It's also sobering. Jesus walking among the lampstands is not just comforting. It's also sobering. It can also be uncomfortable. Jesus says he knows where they live. So Jesus is in touch with his church. I don't know the circumstances in your life, but if you're anything like me, you're kind of prone to let a lot of junk go under the bridge in your life because, well, I'm going through this or I'm going through that. Maybe you travel a lot and you're on the road a lot. Say, well, because I'm on the road a lot and I'm away from home, Well, that kind of gives me permission to look at this kind of material online. Or maybe you're kind of pushed into a corner and, well, because I'm getting pushed into a corner, that means I have permission to respond without gentleness and respect as Jesus told us to respond. Jesus says, I know where you live. Like, I know your circumstances. I'm in touch with them. And you're still accountable to me. And so there's nothing that we can say, well, well, yeah, if God really knew where we were, if he really knew the pressures that we faced, if he really knew why I do what I do, then you don't know. Jesus, like, I know where you live. I know the circumstances in your life. I know the pressures that you face. And I'm still asking you to be a faithful follower of me. I'm still asking you for full, 100% obedience to me. I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne, Pergamum was a place of governmental power, somewhat maybe like a state capital. The first ever temple in honor of a living emperor, Emperor Augustus, was built there in 29 BC. So we talked a lot about the emperor worship, the imperial cult, the first ever temple built in honor of a living emperor, Emperor Augustus, was built actually in Pergamum. Most likely, that's the reason uh, it's referred to as where Satan lives. It was also the center of Greco Roman religion, full of pagan temples dominated by a massive altar to Zeus on the hill above the city. There was a temple to Asclepius there, the Greek Roman god of healing which featured the symbol of a serpent and twined staff. Notice he also says that, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You've been, re- remained faithful to me in spite of that pressure, that persecution. Just a little side note here. Uh, probably the most severe persecution of the time came during the rule of, of Emperor Nero. Uh, Nero brought massive amounts of persecution and torture and suffering on followers of Jesus. But if we're kind of understanding this correctly, Nero most likely was an emperor 30 years in the past. During this season of time, it was the emperor Domitian. And Domitian was certainly violent. He was certainly opposed to Christianity. But persecution was actually a little bit less severe in Domitian's time, which is when this letter was written, than in Nero's time. And so actually the forces of persecution and suffering have been a little bit mitigated. They've actually weathered that storm, 
But Jesus, and so Jesus actually congratulating Hey, you've been faithful. You've endured some of the harshest stuff under the persecution of Nero, who's a couple of decades back. You remain faithful to me. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who has put to death in your city where Satan lives. This is the only reference we have to Antipas. We're not sure who he is. Who knows what happened in Antipas's life? And maybe he went to a doctor. And because Aslepsibius was the god of sort of medicine, maybe he didn't offer the right kind of sacrifice to the god of Aslepius, and therefore he was killed or could not be treated for his medical condition. We don't know, but that's certainly a possibility. Interesting, it says Antipas was God's faithful witness. Uh, that word witness there is actually the Greek word martus, from which you can probably hear we get our word martyr. It's actually during this exact season of time that the Greek word martus actually began to shift in its meaning. Its meaning primarily was witness, one who testifies to. It actually shifted from being one of giving witness to one of giving one's life, and therefore we know it as mar- martyrdom. It became so common that to become a faithful witness to Jesus often entailed death for Jesus, that the word martyrs transitioned from being simply witness to being one of martyr, giving one's life. We already mentioned that in our world there's persecution that's happening. There's suffering that's there. There's people are losing their lives at a pretty significant rate. Add some numbers here. Um, here we are. Over 360 million Christians live in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 360 million. This is actually in last, last year. 5,898 Christians are killed for, were killed for their faith last year. 5,110 churches in other Christian buildings were attacked. 6,175 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. 3,829 Christians were abducted. Friends, listen, here's what I want to say about that. These folks who are part of Jesus' lampstand shine his light and God's presence in our world in a particular way. I don't know why in God's sovereignty we are not, don't have the responsibility of shining God's light in that kind of way. But I'm so thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ who in God's sovereignty have been given a unique responsibility of showing faithfulness to Jesus and the love of God even at the cost of their lives. That's why our hearts should be united to them. God has called us to shine our light in a particular way here in Huntington County in our cultural context in this particular region of New Jersey. But others, he's called to shine their light through giving their lives, through them being abducted, of losing house and home and family and friends. He's called them to be a light in that way. And so we walk in solidarity with them, knowing that they are part of Christ's body, 
that he's called us to faithfully serve him and shine his light in this particular area, in this particular context where we live. He's given them the responsibility of shining the light of Jesus where they live. Verses 12 through 17. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Now, that's a reference back to Numbers, the book of Numbers, kind of 22 to 25. In, that, in those chapters, Balak is the king of Moab. And he contacts Balaam, and he says, Balaam, uh, come with me, and I want you to bring a curse upon the Israelites. King of Moab wanted to defeat the Israelites. Uh, Balaam comes, and God does not permit him to curse the Israelites. But what Balaam does is give Balak some advice and says, if you, if you facilitate the people of Moab integrating with the people of Israel, marrying their folks... They will begin to follow after the gods of Moab. And even though they won't be destroyed from the outside, they're going to get destroyed from the inside. Kind of has a, a, a connection to, to Pergamum itself. They've endured the persecution of Nero. That was the most serious season of persecution. That's a couple of decades back. They've endured that. They've endured pressure from the outside. But now, their highest challenge is not pressure from the outside, it's pressure from inside. How can we compromise? We'll live lives of sexual immorality. We'll follow after the idols. And so, they've endured the threat from outside, now they're needing to endure the threat, the threat from inside. Numbers chapter 31, verse 16 says, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. So Balaam's advice was, be unfaithful to God. Integrate with those who worship other idols. Engage in sexual immorality with others. He goes on to say, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Listen, friends. Jesus calls us to walk in faithful obedience to him. Thankfully, because we live in the area of the world that we do. Yes, there's some pressures from the outside. Yes, that happens. But the pressures to me that are most concerning are not necessarily pressures from the outside of overt persecution or governmental oppression. Yes, there might be some of that going on. But instead, it's sort of the temptation to integrate the behaviors of our world into the behaviors of God's people. That's true in the sexual area, just like it was in Pergamum. That I realize this is hard. I realize this is strange. I realize this is unpopular and uncommon. But the truth of Scripture says that out of God's love, out of his passion for human beings to be who he created us to be, sexuality is to be expressed only between a man and a woman joined in covenant with one another. These are God's words. 
That's what it looks like to follow after Jesus, to be faithful to him, to say, yes, we get lots of messages for how sexuality is to be used. But ultimately, God's truth, his word, is for sexuality to happen only between a husband and wife within the covenant of marriage. Let me tell you, friends, that's not popular. I get it. There's lots of pressure to do whatever you want. But to live faithful to Jesus, we need to be people of sexual holiness and not just manage our lives as we desire according to our personal autonomy, but instead to follow fully after the words of Jesus. He says in verse 16, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the word, sword of my mouth. Here's what I want to challenge you to do, friends. Jesus calls us to follow him. But what's easy to do is this, to follow Jesus, but to also have an and here. I'll follow Jesus and, like, I'll do this. I'll follow Jesus and I'll engage in this particular behavior. Maybe here's some ideas. I, will fo- I follow Jesus and I use coarse and profane language. I follow Jesus and I live for the acceptance and approval of others. I follow Jesus and I can do whatever I please with my money. I follow Jesus and I try to find life through pornography. I follow Jesus and I am devoted to seeking comfort and pleasure. I follow Jesus and I don't need to serve others. I follow Jesus and I can put down other people and be demeaning on social media. I follow Jesus and I don't need to spend time in worship, prayer, and meditation with God's people. I follow Jesus and I can do whatever I want with my own life. I follow Jesus and I am more familiar with popular culture than I am with God's word. I follow Jesus and I can watch CNN, Fox News, or my favorite TV shows more than I spend time with God. I follow Jesus and I can hate my political enemies. I follow Jesus and I can get my escape through alcohol or drugs. I follow Jesus and I can accumulate as many possessions as I want. Friends, maybe give some thought this afternoon. What's in your blank? Yes, I follow Jesus and... What else are you and I devoted to as followers of Jesus where we don't just follow Jesus, we follow Jesus and we integrate following Jesus with whatever we want. I'll follow Jesus as long as he doesn't cross my personal autonomy. I'll follow Jesus as long as he doesn't conflict with my sexual pleasure. I'll follow Jesus as long as he's good with me keeping my possessions to myself. Do you follow Jesus or do you follow Jesus and? And what's in your blank? And let the Holy Spirit do some serious cutting. Let the truth of God's word go deeply into your soul. Because my guess is we need to hear the same words of Pergamum. That we're not to follow Jesus and. We're not to follow Jesus and integrate our own deal. We're to be followers of Jesus 
and walk in obedience to him. Just lastly, verse 17, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Most likely, certainly that's a reference to the Old Testament manna given to the people of Israel in the wilderness. It's probably also kind of sets a contrast with the food offered to idols. In other words, you're going to need to refuse what is the seen and present and visible, the food offered to idols, in order to participate in the unseen. And at the end of Revelation, Jesus mentions the marriage supper of the Lamb, the ultimate time of communion, relationship, and feasting in relationship with God. And so the hidden manna sustains us. It's not what's present, visible, immediate, food sacrificed to idols. Instead, it comes from feasting on Jesus and knowing that in the end, there's going to be an incredible celebration. I will also give that person a white stone. White stones were, it was a Sarah. Champions in athletic games were given a white stone. White stones were given as a token of admission to pagan feasts and festivals. And so that might likely have a connection to the marriage feast of the Lamb as well. Yes, you might not be given access to pagan festivals, but you'll be given full access to dwelling in the eternal presence of God. White stones were used in courts of law as jurors would vote for acquittal, setting forth a white stone or in contrast to a black stone that would symbolize conviction. And so Jesus is saying, you're going to be given a white stone. You're fully acquitted. You're fully righteous. You're fully forgiven. And then he says, with a new name on it, known only to the one who receives it. New name being a sense of identity, of deep, deep, deep personal connection to Jesus, known only to the one who receives it. Listen, friends, God knows where you live. He knows what you're enduring. He knows what you persevere. He knows better than you even, better than any one of your friends. He loves you. He wants you to walk in faithful obedience to him. And there's a relationship that God has with you that you're his special son, you're his special daughter. He knows where you live. He knows where we live. And he calls us to be faithful to him, to live in holiness and righteousness, not as self-righteous, prudish people, but as people who honor and delight in the person of Jesus and who offer our lives to him so that we follow Jesus rather than follow Jesus and I'm going to ask our team to come out, and we're going to close our service by just singing a song that we're going to offer as a prayer to God, a prayer to give us clean hands, a prayer to give us a pure heart. So let's stand as we sing this together. Uh, let's sing it in a spirit of prayer. Let's sing it as offering ourselves to God. Uh, let us, along with the Church of Pergamum, say, Jesus, we want to follow after you. And may your Holy Spirit convict us of Whatever we have down here in this blank, may we not follow you and may we just follow you. So let's sing this together.
give us clean hands. May you give us pure hearts. May we not lift our souls to another. And we pray this to the Father in the name of Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. And everyone who agreed said, amen. 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 Our prayer team is going to be down here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. God bless and let's live this week and follow Jesus and pay attention to what's in our hands.